with us here today. Welcome. Uh, we are in a sermon series entitled We Believe, which is a study through the theological doctrines that define us. And today we are considering the doctrine of man, what the Bible teaches about man. And so our text is Psalm 8. Our title is What is Man? What is man? In 1996, the Copenhagen Zoo added a new exhibit. They were excited to add a new exhibit to their primate section. Squeezed in between the baboons and the orangutans was a pair of Homo sapiens. That's right. A couple, a man and a woman, agreed to be put on exhibit right alongside the other primates. The purpose of the exhibit, as one zoo official put it, was to show that humans are monkeys in a way. But while other primates were busy swinging from branches or picking parasites from each other's fur, the caged Homo sapiens worked on restoring a motorcycle, composing newspaper columns on their computers, listening to music, reading books, and sipping freshly brewed coffee while reading the morning newspaper. The exhibit was short-lived. Because, as it turns out, Denmark has human rights laws which state that you may not encage people. In the 25 years since that zoo experiment, we have sadly only seen a further diminishment in the understanding of what a human is. Uh, we have not evolved, but devolved further in our thinking. The common assumption of our day isn't just that we are another kind of primate, but that we are a psychologically constructed being. That is, we are determined by our desires, our thoughts, and our wills. Uh, for years, we have taught our children that you can be, we've told our children, you can be whatever you want to be, and now we have a generation of adults who actually believe that. And they are convinced that self-determination is the greatest expression of authenticity. This is most evident in the transgender movement. Uh, when a person is trapped, they say, trapped in the wrong body, and yet through chemical, surgical, and technological treatments, will attempt to bring their body into alignment with their personal desires and self-identification. In other words, they deny that gender is rooted in biology. Rather, they advocate the real person, the true self, resides in the self-psychological identification. Many of us remember last year's Senate Judiciary Committee hearing for Supreme Court Justice or Supreme Court nominee uh, Katanji Jackson. Uh, she was asked to provide a definition for the word woman. Uh, to which she replied, uh, no, I can't, not in this context, I'm not a biologist. Now, take that same line of thinking, take that same assumption, and think about what's coming down, apply it to what's coming down the pike with technological advances such as bionic devices to augment human potential or neural interface technology integrated with artificial intelligence, you know, implanted right in your brain right there. Uh, it's not just transgenderism we're talking about now, but transhumanism. Transhumanism. 
And under that same line of thinking, carrying forward the same assumption, in the not-too-distant future, when asked to provide a definition for the word human, a nominated justice might just be saying, no, I can't, not in this context, I'm not a computer scientist. All of this highlights what Carl Truman refers to as the anthropological crisis that marks our time. Anthropology being the the study of what it means to be a human. Uh, Dr. Truman explains, much of the turmoil in our contemporary Western world is a function of the collapse of consensus concerning what it means to be human. The fractitious and futile debates about gender, sexuality, abortion, and race all track back to a loss of a sense of human nature as a universal reality in which we all share. Then there is the increasing tendency in our culture to define people in terms of their ideas and convictions, and thereby to deny legitimacy to any who happen to disagree with us. This affects everything. It makes it increasingly rare to have personal friendships between those of different perspectives. Listen to this line. When we are belief or when we are our beliefs and convictions, what can we have in common with those who do not share them? It is why the language of human rights is now often and ironically not deployed to speak about the rights all individuals enjoy as human beings, but rather as some socially constructed subcategory of humanity. And it feeds into the increasing tendency of both political sides to deny legitimacy to elections that favor the other side. Crisis is an overused term, but it seems eminently justified to describe our current moment. We do live in a time marked by a crisis of anthropology. We live in an age of anthropological crisis. Uh, Different periods of church history uh, have raised different challenges. There have been different questions that the church has had to answer. For instance, in the early church, it was often uh, challenges and questions around the Christology, around the the fullness of Christ's deity and and humanity incarnation. During the Reformation, there were many such issues, such as um, salvation, the issues regarding salvation, that we are justified through faith alone, in Christ alone, by grace alone. Well, the challenge in our day which I would offer is no less more serious than the challenge in the times of the Reformation, is one of anthropology. The most pertinent question of our day, which is asked by and answered by our text, is what is man? And I trust you understand I'm using man as it is used in the Bible, not only to refer to male man, but mankind, humanity. Adam was named Adam, after the word Adam in Hebrew, which means man or mankind. And so he just became that name. He took up that name. We're not talking about male. We're talking about mankind, humanity, human being. In a time marked by anthropological crisis, we need to turn to timeless truth to understand what constitutes humanity. So please follow along now as I read Psalm 8, timeless truth. This is God's holy and authoritative word. 
to the choir master, according to the Getith, a psalm of David. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet, you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, may the Lord, our Lord, bless the preaching and the believing of his word. I have three points today to work us through this text. Three points. And the first is the majesty of God. The majesty of God. You may have noticed in the reading of this text that verses 1 and 9 frame this poem with the same announcement regarding the majesty of God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Uh, This is, don't be fooled, this is a passage about man, about humanity, and yet it begins and it ends with God. And so for a passage about humanity, this makes a necessary statement about humanity, which is that if we are to know ourselves, we must first know God. To understand who and what we are, we must understand where we fit in the cosmic order, and we must understand who and what God is. He is the Lord, our Lord. The first use of the word Lord in your Bible is probably in small caps, Uh, It translates God's personal name, Yahweh, a Hebrew word, Yahweh, which comes from the Hebrew word for I am. When God met Moses at the burning bush and commanded him to go back to Egypt and deliver the Hebrews from slavery, Moses asked him, who should I say sent me? Who should I say to Pharaoh sent me? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Do you see how I, I did that? I used that, use that voice. I am who I am. We just watched The Prince of Egypt recently, um, and, uh, and I love, Val Kilmer does uh, Moses' voice, and he does God's voice. And so, you know, when he does the God voice, I am, you know, it's just, you get these goosebumps. And I remember him doing an interview once when this came out. This is like, this is not in my notes. I'm totally off script here. How did I get here? I don't even know. I'm talking about Val Kilmer. <laughs> Um, when I could be talking about the Lord, but I got here, so I got, let me get us off of here. Uh, I just remember he was doing an interview once, and uh, and he says whenever he corrects his kids now, well, this is a long time ago, but whenever he corrected his kids, they'd just be like, oh, Dad, you're doing your God voice. <laughs> but there is this regal authority, this awesomeness with how God answers. Who, who do I say sent me, God? Who do I say sent me? Say, 
I am who I am. And again he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, which is Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. The name Yahweh speaks of the self-existence and self-sufficiency of God. All others are dependent upon Him for life and breath and existence, while He is dependent upon no one. God always does what He pleases, and what He pleases is always right and good. There are no outside constraints on God. What He does not will to exist... Um, there's nothing that constrains him that he does not will for it to constrain him is what I'm saying, which means he is utterly and entirely free. He is in fact the only free being in the universe. I am that I am. And this great I am, he is the perfect standard of truth and goodness and beauty, which means he is the most important, most powerful, and most desirable being in existence. God is more worthy of interest and attention and obedience and admiration and enjoyment than all other persons and all other realities put together, including the entire universe. This Yahweh, this great I am, this Lord, the psalmist says, is our Lord. Our Lord. The second use of the word Lord here translates the Hebrew word Adonai, which means king, ruler, governor, sovereign. Yahweh is our Adonai. He is our Lord. And His name is majestic in all the earth because there is no name like His name. His name defines majesty. His name is majestic one, magnificent one, the excellent one. And his glory, the psalmist says, his glory, which is that manifestation, that brightness, that shining brilliance of who and what he is, it reaches like the sun's beams, not only to the ends of the earth, but the psalmist says, out and beyond the heavens itself. In other words, there is no end to the glory of this God, our God. The psalmist also says, though, here that God has enemies. For all his majesty, God has opponents, those who would refuse to give him the glory due his name, who would challenge his majesty. And verse 2 says, in a somewhat surprising way, that God has ordained babies and infants to answer his enemies. When God's enemies challenge his majesty, we're told God says, Bring forth the child's choir. My secret weapon. <laughs> Why children? Why children singing? Why babes and infants? Well, they represent the weakest, the most dependent, the most powerless. Infants and babies are humans at their weakest and most dependent stage, and God defeats his opponents. He defeats those who oppose him and his majesty, not by calling forth some great heralds of truths and magnificent speakers and you know strong and mighty men. No, he calls forth the weak, the unimpressive, in this world's eyes, the insignificant. 
and uses them. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-28, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Friends, this is part of the majesty of our God. Yahweh, our Adonai, delights to reveal his majesty and to still, to stop his enemy through those who are weak and dependent upon him, like a child to his parents. Alan Ross so helpfully writes about this in his commentary saying, God has chosen to use weak things to confound the mighty. He does not need to use powerful people or eloquent speakers to silence his adversaries. A simple cry for help will be heard by God and will overcome the world. (laughs) That is so helpful and encouraging to hear. A simple cry for help will be heard by God and will overcome the world. This is the design of God to stop the enemy and the avenger. Friend, if you're here today and you are weak and weary, if you're needy, let me, en- let me encourage you, go back this week and read Psalms 3-7. through 7. Just go back and look at... Psalms 3 through 7, work your way through these in an unhurried way, and what will stick out to you in all these psalms is that they boil down to simple cries to God for help. Simple cries to God by a weakened man who was dependent upon God, who threw himself on God, who was heard by God, and God strengthened him to endure until he eventually silenced his enemies. If you need encouragement about how God draws near to the weak, read Psalms 3-7, through and then you can also skip ahead and read the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 21. We haven't been in Matthew for a while, so you may want to remind yourself of this glorious Gospel we have been working our way through, and we'll get back to eventually. But in Matthew chapter 21, we're informed that our Lord Jesus healed the blind and the lame, and upon doing so, children at the temple were crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David! Hosanna to the Son of David! They were identifying Jesus as the Messiah. Children were, but the chief priests and the scribes would have nothing of it. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? I think that's so revealing. Not these kids, not these children, not these people. It's these. They don't even get a designation. What these are saying? And our Lord responded and said to them, yes, Have you never read scribes and Pharisees, experts in the law, men who make their living studying and teaching the word of God? Have you never read Psalm 8? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Friends, this is exactly how our Lord delights to reveal his majesty and still his enemies. It is through childlike faith It is through simple cries for help. It is through the prayers and praise of a people who are wholly dependent upon him. So all who are here today, weak and weary, all who are here today in need of strength, you need strength 
in your endless struggle against sin, or you need strength to endure yet another day in this trial that has stretched on and on and on, or you arrived here today in need of strength to press in, to do what God has called you to do, to suffer for his sake, to take up the responsibilities that he has called you to. If that's you, then verse two is a gift to you. Because verse two is meant to give you hope. It is meant to give you strength. It is meant to remind you that God is pleased to use the weak. God delights to use our weaknesses to reveal his majesty and to still his enemies. He is pleased to use you and your simple cries for help to display his glory. Now, as it relates to the deeper question this passage addresses, which is the question for our day, that question, what is man? This is what we learn in this portion of the passage. A proper consideration of what it means to be a human being begins with God. It begins with Him as Yahweh, our Lord, Creator, Supplier, Lord, Sovereign. The first order in knowing ourselves is knowing that we are creatures of God's design. Which leads us into point number two then this morning. The insignificance of man. The insignificance of man. If you were coming here to be lifted up today, first I have to take you low. The insignificance of man. Verses three and four. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? There is something about the insignificance of man that captures David's thoughts as he looked up into the evening sky, just meditating on the exceeding greatness of the cosmos. He was struck with how small we are in comparison. And much of what is wrong today with our modern thinking about humanity is that we tend to start in the opposite place. We tend to think about ourselves with too much import. Too much emphasis on our self-importance. This could be in part because of the way that we are raised. um, Because uh, as little ones, when babies dirty their diapers, someone is there to change them. And when they are hungry, someone is there to feed them. And when they are upset, someone is there to comfort them. And when they are lonely, someone is there to hold them. So as far as a baby knows, they are in fact the center of the universe. That is the experience of a child in the first year or two of their existence. They are, in fact, the center of the universe. And that's to be expected those first couple of years. But it becomes a serious problem in their development and in a society when that child still thinks like that at four years of age, 14 years of age, 24 years of age, 44 years of age, 64 years of age. A careful consideration of the evening sky of creation can go a long way in helping children and adults overcome their misguided sense of self-importance. I love this insight from John Piper. 
He said, no one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. No one goes to the Grand Canyon to increase self-esteem. Why do we go? Because there is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than there is in beholding self. There is greater healing for the soul in beholding splendor than in beholding self. So application from today's passage is uh, we all need to plan a trip to the Grand Canyon. That's what we're going to do. All right, there we go. Let's do it. Uh, some of you are going to the Grand Canyon this year, so uh, you're doing it well. Uh, other of us, maybe take a trip to Niagara Falls. Uh, go to the beach and stand on the sand and watch the waves roll in incessantly. Stare off into the horizon where the water and the sky meet. Uh, you know, go hike a mountain. Go to Cuyahoga Fall, N- Valley National Park and hike. Contemplate the wonders of creation and the tiny place you exist in. Many of you know that Teddy Roosevelt is one of my historical heroes, uh, and it's been a while since I told you a Teddy story, so you're due. Uh, Teddy loved nature. He loved, as he called it, to romp through creation. And that's such a Teddy thing to say, a romping through creation. And one of his great friends was the outdoorsman and explorer, William Beebe. And William Beebe tells this ritual that they had whenever he would visit President Roosevelt. They would stay up late into the evening talking, you know, whatever they would talk about, uh, how to fix the world and all that stuff. And after an evening of talk, what they would do is they would go out into the lawn And they would search the heavens for what they described as a faint light amiss. A faint light amiss in the constellation of Pegasus. I'm lost already. I have no idea how you would find that. But they knew how to find that. And they would find that faint light amiss in the constellation of Pegasus. Then one of them would say, that is the spiral galaxy of Andromeda. It is as large as our Milky Way. It's one of a hundred million galaxies. It is 750,000 light years away. It consists of a hundred billion suns, each larger than our own sun. And then, after observing a moment of silence, Bibi says President Roosevelt would flash that big grin of his and say, Now, I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. Now, I think we're small enough. Let's go to bed. It was the knowledge of our smallness that led David to wonder in amazement, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? He was stunned by the fact that creation is massive and masterful, while man in comparison is small and slight. How can the God who made all of this be mindful of us, me? John Newton, the famed author of the great hymn Amazing Grace, uh, describes a time in his life when he was struggling with severe distress, great distress. And he said his distress was not really a result of fear. It wasn't that he was afraid of being punished for all his sins, so much as an apprehension that God would, quote, entirely overlook me because of my insignificance. Entirely overlook me. However, such 
thoughts seem foreign to the modern mind as we pride ourselves on all the advances and achievements we've made in science and medicine, technology and education. Rather than adopt the humility of David, our day has adopted the hubris of Babel. How easy it is, how easily we forget our frailty. And yet how easy and how frequently does God remind us He has woven reminders uh, into our daily lives. Every time we are laid low by sickness and accidents, every time a part of our body breaks, you know, I'm getting, I don't know if this works for you, but every year I'm getting older. Is that how it works for you? Every year I'm getting older. And I find certain things don't work like they used to work. And that is God's kind reminder that I am frail. God reminds us, he's woven this reminder into our day-to-day lives, but he also reminds us on much larger scales at times to get our attention as when it pleases him to unleash a virus that shuts down most of the world or to send destructive tornadoes across proud states. In those moments, we are thinking rightly. We should confess our weakness, our inability our absolute dependence upon God. What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? And yet, the good news of the gospel is the assurance that God does care about us. He cares ever so deeply. God cares enough. He loves you enough that he sent his son, his only son, to die for you. So whatever causes you to doubt God's care for you, whatever awareness you have of your insignificance, whatever tempts you to despair like John Newton, however much you're aware of your weaknesses and your frailties, and they just seem like great baggage in your life, and you're tempted to think that God just might overlook you in your insignificance. Well, take all those doubts, take all those temptations, and lay them at the foot of the cross where God has spoken a better word. He has given his son for you because he cares for you. Psalm 8 presents man as being completely dwarfed by creation. Very small in comparison, and yet it also confesses That man is God's creature, crowned with glory and honor, insignificant on the one hand, and yet made by God, for God, with dignity and purpose on the other. So, shifting from the insignificance of man, we now want to look at the third and final point this morning, the significance of man. The significance of man. God has established man in a place of importance in his creation. We see this in verse 5. Yet... Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. He says, yet, despite our smallness, despite our relative insignificance, yet God made us to fulfill, the psalmist says, a mediating role. We fulfill a mediating role between, uh, we are positioned by God between the heavenly beings, which are above us, and the animals, the beast which are below us, verses 7 and 8, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. Mankind is between heavenly beings, our spirits with no body. Animals have a body, but no spirit, no soul. 
But man has both. We are embodied souls. Embodied souls. And there's every reason in this passage to believe that David is referring here back to Moses' words in Genesis chapter 1 and what God did in creating image bearers when he made us. That is what man is. That is what man is. Bearers of God's image. This is the glory and the honor he has crowned us with. Genesis 1, 26 and 27. And here are the allusions that come out in Psalm 8. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. God has made us, and God has made us to bear His image. And one of the great ways we do that is we represent and resemble Him in this world, but we also rule in His place in this world. We are stewards of this earth. He has given us dominion, and this comes out in our psalm in verse 6 again. You have given Him, being mankind, dominion over the works of His hands. So He has given His image bearers the right to rule in His place, to control, to guide, and to cultivate this creation. And this is demonstrated with every new discovery and every achievement that we celebrate. Aerodynamics testifies to this, as does air conditioning and Aston Martins and Apple computers. Um, Some of these apples are not so much with the Microsoft, but apples, yes, yes, the glory of God. All this testifies to the dominion God has given man in this world, but... Specifically, according to verses 7 and 8, God has given us dominion over the animals, over Earth's human or animal life. Humans are animate creatures, but we are not mere animals. We rule over the animals. We are not only monkeys in a way, as the zoo guy said. Men and women are created in the image of God. We are embodied souls, which means that our souls matter. Obviously, Jesus saved us, but so do our bodies. For Jesus saves our bodies as well. We will one day have a new body. Our bodies matter, and they are part of the creation. They are part of the created order. Any of you who have studied your Bibles long enough know that the order of creation, creation itself, proclaims the glory of God. Romans 1, Psalm 19, it tells us about God. Creation tells us about God. It tells us about His power and His wisdom and His will for our lives. Creation tells us about God, and our bodies are created and tell us about God and His will for our lives. They make known His wisdom and His will for us. But this is exactly, I'm stressing this because this is exactly where the anthropological challenge of our day comes in. If we're only monkeys in a way, if we're all body and no soul, and our bodies don't actually reveal something of God's moral purposes to us, that how he made us doesn't really matter, actually we're just the result of random variations and natural selection as Darwin taught, then our bodies... Our bodies are just clumps of clay, clumps of matter, raw material to be manipulated and controlled like any other natural resource to serve whatever agenda we have. 
So take the issue of abortion. In the past, uh, advocates for abortion typically denied that a preborn baby is human. It's just a blob of tissue, they reasoned, uh, until it's birth, until it's born. Uh, it's a collection of cells. It has the potential of life. However, today, due to advances in genetics, virtually all professing bioethicists agree that life begins at conception. Uh, you just can't deny it. An embryo has a full set of chromosomes and DNA. So, so the question, so why are we still arguing over abortion then? Why are we still arguing over abortion? If bioethicists all agree, not Christian ones, I mean, everyone, agree that it begins at conception, life begins at, why are we still arguing over it? Well, the popular argument now, view now, is that the fetus, the fetus is just a piece of matter, which can be used for research or experiments, then tossed into the trash, because that it is a human, but that human has not yet become, they, would, they argue, a person. It's human, but not a person. It's called personhood theory. The baby in the womb has to earn the status of personhood by a true, a, achieving a certain level of cognitive functioning. Uh, this is the argument that is made by many, but John Kerry made it famously when running for president in 2004. He surprised people by agreeing that life begins at conception, but then defended his support of abortion, explaining that the preborn baby is, quote, not the form of life that takes personhood in the terms that we have judged it to be. Now that's a revealing state, more revealing than he realizes. It is not the form of life that takes personhood in the terms that we have judged it to be. Mr. Carey's assumption, which is commonplace in our day, is that the body is just a clump of matter, a collection of atoms and molecules, while the real person is in the mind, is in the cognitive function, is in the thinking and the desires and the will of the individual. And so until it becomes a person, that human can be done with, can be done away with. The same argument used in, for euthanasia, uh, but we also see the same assumptions undergirding the arguments for homosexuality. Uh, even in church, and especially among young people uh, who are saturated in this culture, uh, I understand there could be confusion over uh, why the Bible teaches that same-sex attraction or same-sex relationships are wrong. Uh, there's confusion over that. Uh, a lot could be said here, but whatever the cause of homoerotic inclinations are, think about it this way. Biologically, physiologically, chromosomally, and anatomically, I couldn't do this in first service either. Help me out. Anto anatomically, tongues, interpretation. Um, <laughs> male and female, males and females are counterparts to one another. That's how the human sexual reproductive system is designed, not evolved, but designed by its maker. So then to engage in same-sex behavior says, in effect, why should my body inform my psychological identity? Why should the structural order of my body have anything, anything to say about my sexuality or what I do sexually? The assumption is our bodies were not designed to give us any guidance to our sexual preference or identity. It is, in fact, irrelevant to what we want. 
This is even more manifest, as I already noted, in arguments supporting transsexual and transgenderism. And the meaning, or if the meaning of our sexuality is not derived from the body, if it's not derived from how we were physically made, then it's something that can be imposed on the body. Sexuality has become a social and psychological construction. Uh, the challenge of the transgender movement is the insistence that every person is endowed with the inalienable right to either accept or reject their biological identity as male or female. It's up to them, not their maker, not the Lord, our Lord. Sin has so ravaged the human race at points depravity has advanced so rapidly and extensively that it might, it's tempting to think of these people just like that, as these people, deviants, so lost and depraved. And I wonder if the temptation for us is that we even kind of want to think of them that way because it would separate us from them. It would separate us from the most deviant. But friends, we must never forget that every person is created in the image of God and deserving of dignity and honor. and compassion. This is what C.S. Lewis meant when he wrote, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked a mere mortal. Friends, we must speak the truth into this generation, into this day, into this age, but we must do so with love and dignity and honor. That is the Christian way. Not impatience, not intolerance, not with disdain, but with dignity because we are all made in God's image. And the reality is, is they are more like us than they are different from us. They are more like us than they are different from us. Moreover, their rebellion is at heart no different than our own. Their rebellion at heart is no different than our own. Romans 1, for what can be known about God is plain. He has revealed himself through the things that he has made. So, although we all know God, none of us honored him or gave thanks to him, but became futile in our thinking, and our foolish hearts were darkened. Our rebellion is the same. Psalm 8 says that the Lord has given dominion of this earth to us. We are in control of this place. It is all under our feet, and we must all look around and admit we have really made a mess of it. We have really made a mess of it. There are great things in this world. There are many things I thank God for, but there's a lot that we have screwed up. 
Yet here is our hope. This is our hope. This is our help. The Apostle Paul quotes these same verses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 with reference to Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jesus, Paul writes, For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For, quote, from Psalm 8, God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus is the perfect man. Jesus came to be the man that we could not be. We have very failed to carry out the commission that God has given us. More than that, we have fallen away from God. We do not honor and give thanks to him as we ought. Instead, we do what we please. We reject God and we rebel against reality. But God being rich in mercy, has not abandoned the crown of his creation. Quite the opposite, actually. He sent his son to save us, to rescue us from our rebellion and to restore to us our true humanity. And I think some of you may need to hear that again today. He has come to, with time and progressively, as we confessed earlier, restore to us our true humanity. To do this, the Son of God became a man. Our creator took on human nature. He became an embodied soul. And as a man, he lived a life of perfect obedience to God's commandments. Jesus is the only righteous man, the only perfect imago dei in all of history, and yet he willingly laid down his life on the cross as if he himself were a sinner. He did this to make the perfect sacrifice for our sins. And having done so, God raised him from the dead as the perfect man. He is the true and better Adam the second Adam, the real man who will never die again. And by turning from our sin and entrusting ourselves to Jesus, we can experience the restoring grace of God, recreating us to be what we were made to be that sin has so corrupted. The true image of God. God created man in his own image. The image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And I feel like I ought to add this to any of you who are struggling with some of the you've had some of the things that I was addressing today, you've had an abortion in your past or you have um, promoted abortion or you have struggled with um, sexual sin and uh, same-sex attractions or transgender, gender dysphoria. If that's you, all this gospel hope I am preaching to you here, this is all for you. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says of those who practice homosexuality, he says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified by Jesus Christ. And I want to hold out to you, if that's you, there may, be, there may be real and sincere brokenness in your sexuality, in your life, caused by all kinds of different things that I'd be happy to talk to you about. But I want you to see, back to verse 2, that's for you. Out of the weak, out of the broken, out of the needy, the Lord can work praise. The Lord will work praise out of your life. And so that's for you. You, I don't debate your brokenness. I don't debate your struggles. But I want to offer out gospel hope and help to you. And that's why we draw the theological lines that we draw. That's why... That's why this statement of faith, all that we're talking about here, these build walls. You understand that, right? Like when we're 
defining our doctrines. They're building walls, but they're not walls to keep people out. They're walls to make a refuge here for you, a place where you can find truth and love and hope for change. This is a place where you can find light, a refuge of light in the midst of a darkened season, a darkened age. So what is man? What is man? Man is exactly what God says he is. Nothing more, nothing less, and nothing else. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Lord, if your creation, if staring off into the night sky can make us think, what is man that you are mindful of him? Uh, How much more the fact that you became a man to save us. That That our rebellion did not disgust you so that you just left us. You just abandoned us. Failed experiment. Just moving on. But you set your love upon us. And you said, I love it, Jesus Christ. Uh, Your resurrection in your own body where you ate fish and slept and had people touch you uh, just shows us you care not only about saving souls, but righting sinned bodies, broken bodies. You care about us body and soul because that is how you made us. And so your salvation extends not only into the depths of our soul, but it extends into the, the ends of our bodies as well. And so, Lord, I pray that you would enlarge our faith to receive your word and believe it, to build our lives upon it as a firm foundation, a solid rock, and that, Lord, you would indeed, you would in fact build this church as that place of refuge for all those who need help and are broken. God, may we minister the grace and the gospel of truth to them, but may we do so in compassion and dignity and love. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm very-